0: One verse for us this morning, we could probably read it by the time you find it, but it's tucked into the Psalms, and it's in the 46th chapter, and it's the 10th verse, and this is how it reads, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted throughout all the earth. Jenna Reese has written a wonderful little book entitled Flunking Sainthood. She talks about her experience of trying to find more time in her day to pray. She says, and I quote, One day in early June, I am sitting in our living room to undertake a prayer practice. I've already set the kitchen timer for 20 minutes, so I'm ready to roll. I sit down on the ottoman, which is backless, And therefore, not very comfortable. I figure I get at least two holy brownie points for that. And the phrase that I have chosen to be my sacred non-mantra is, Peace, be still. The first thing I notice is all the noise around me. It's lunchtime during the first Friday of the month, and I'd forgotten that it's siren day. So at noon on that day, our city tests its emergency siren system. So, roar is all I hear. I wonder what would happen if it was a real emergency, speculates my monkey mind. What kind of situation would they use that emergency for? What does it tell us? Is it just for a tornado or... What if it was a terrorist attack? Oh, cricky, what would I do if it was a terrorist attack? Peace be still, whispers spiritual mind. I let it go. I picture it floating away on a sailboat against a stark blue sky. I hear a dog bark. There's a toddler fussing on the sidewalk outside. You know, it would be quieter in this room if you simply replace those 85-year-old windows with double panes, says Monkey Mind. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I have been meaning to research that particular possibility. I wonder how much it would cost, though, and would we be able to afford it while also paying for Jerusalem's school next year? Could we match over those Six over one window panes? Or don't they make that style anymore? Peace, be still, says spiritual mind. A little bit more firmly this time. I sigh and try to listen for God. Or maybe that was God, speculates monkey mind. Maybe God is telling you to replace those windows and do your bit for the environment. Newer windows, you know, are far more energy efficient. God cares about his creation, you know. Peace, be still. We start again. Peace is such a beautiful thought. Peace, be still, hums in monkey's mind. What are the lyrics to that hymn again? The winds and the waves shall obey his will. Peace, be still. Whether the wrath of a storm tossed the sea or demons or men or whatever might. I wonder if the guy that wrote that hymn really thought demons were attacking him? It seems so bizarre. What would that feel like? If demons are real and they and they simply went around attacking people? What if a demon tried to possess me, like happened in that movie where? Be still, yells spiritual mind. End quote. Prayer seems to be a battle. Being still is so much easier said than done. It serves as a reminder that, that prayer doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. Prayer doesn't start with our speaking or even with our listening. Prayer starts with our seeing. Philip Yancey writes prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. Seeing from God's point of view is the proper posture of prayer. Before we ever speak a single word to God, we need to engage in a proper posture. To better understand this proper prayer posture, we turn to David in the Psalms. David has more Psalms than anybody else in that book. And most of his Psalms are prayers. Psalm 46, the one in which our text is tucked, is attributed to the sons of Korah. The sons of Karah were the group of people that were in the temple and were, if you will, praying 24-7, every day, all day, all week, all year, constant prayer. Our text is that 10th verse. Proper prayer starts with the proper posture, which is to be still and to know that he is God it's where all prayer starts. Now understand, it's just two simple words. Two words. And yet, it's hardly simple. It requires being countercultural. John Colmer in his book The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry suggests that there are three things that have radically changed our western world. The clock, the light bulb, and the iPhone. Once upon a time, even before my time, the first public clock was set up in a little town in Germany. The year was 1370. And it soon came to other towns as well, and it would gong, and it would ring the hour. And it changed the rhythm of people's lives. You see, before clocks, we were on nature's time. So we went to bed at sunset and we got up with sunrise. We slept less in the summer and we slept more in the winter. Sleeping long in the winter was a good time to get through the coldest time of the day. After clocks... People started to live on artificial time. They began to schedule their lives according to clock time. They took more control of their schedule and they started following their personal agendas. Then a man named Thomas Edison came along and invented this light bulb. And people started trading their sleep for productivity. And everyone assumed that this new technology would bring more joy to their life. In fact, in 1967, a Senate subcommittee predicted that in less than 20 years, so by 1987, we would all be living on 22-hour work weeks and only working for 27 weeks of the year. I've suggested that kind of work week to some of the churches I've worked with in the past, but nobody seems too excited about it except me. Sadly, we... We work even more today, and studies show that our leisure time and our enjoyment of life have perpetually decreased, not increased. And then the iPhone came along in 2007. It's only been 16 years since then, but instead of of helping us slow life down, it too has tended to speed it up even more. The average iPhone user spends five hours, five hours and 42 minutes a day on their phone. You add that all up, that is 2,100 hours a year. So people are on their iPhone even more than they're at work if they're working a full-time job. Mental health officials indicate that trying to fit everything that we want to do and that is expected of us into a 24-hour day has brought an epidemic known as hurry sickness. Dallas Willard is rather emphatic when he says that to maintain a healthy spiritual life, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. This hurry sickness, he says, impacts and in order... Physicians and attorneys, and wait for it, and pastors the most. Obviously, Willard was referring to far less mature pastors, just so you know. The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung says bluntly, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Richard Foster writes, our adversary... The devil majors in three primary things in noise, in hurry, and in crowds. If he keeps us engaged in muchness and manyness, he rests satisfied. Now, we like to blame the culture for our busyness. I mean, it's those demands of life that require this kind of significant pace. We're behind, we're just trying to catch up, we're just trying to stay with the rest of the world, we say. Important people, that's us, important people are by necessity busy people. The world depends on our being busy. It's nothing more than a lie that we have used to deceive ourselves, to justify our personal participation. In the madcap, feverish lifestyle of this world, our inner life should not mirror this world. It needs to be countercultural. Hurry is the greatest single enemy of one's spiritual life and of our intimacy and time with the Father. The sons of Korah urge us to be still in Psalm 46. And they're not only inviting us into something that is more healthy and emotionally well. They're inviting us to push back against an ancient conspiracy. You see, not long after the world's beginning, Adam and Eve grabbed a forbidden fruit from a forbidden tree. And scripture says they sinned. And so they hid. They covered themselves. They argued. They blamed one another. They dealt with their sin by adding to it muchness and manyness. They brought it to their lives. And they brought it to our lives as well. We quickly discovered it is much easier to simply ignore and push our sin off to the side to move past our tarnished relationship with God. We can do that more effectively if we keep busy, if we keep distracted. And so since the fall, we have mastered the art of hurry. Ronald Rollheiser writes, quote, we see ourselves as good people, just not very deep. Not as bad people, just busy. Not immoral, just distracted. Not lacking in heart, just preoccupied. We deceive ourselves. So we try to import prayer and spiritual things, spiritual activities into our already over-busy, hurried life. We try by treating the symptoms while ignoring the cause. We try to keep up the illusion or delusion so we don't have to come face to face with the truth. The sons of Korah reminded us that the proper prayer position is a stillness that King David tried to practice. See, David was king of a nation that was constantly engaged in tribal warfare. When he hit the pillow at night, he hit it worried that the enemy was still encamped on the hills outside town. But King David practiced the stillness that allowed him to slow down and allowed him to see the world from God's perspective. Be still. The Latin word for still means to vacate. It's the root of our word for Vacation. It's an invitation of prayer anytime, anywhere. Take a break. Step away. Enjoy. Slow down. Let's stop pretending that we're in charge of our life, that we are the captain of our soul, and let us release control and give it to the one who's really in control. Let us return, if you will, to the created order. If prayer begins with God, if God is in charge, then our prayers must begin with being still before him. So just for the record, you and I are very important people. We head corporations, we run businesses, we lead churches, we star on the football or on the soccer or on the baseball teams. We have diplomas, we have titles, we have degrees, we have dollars and resources and influence and power and responsibilities. I mean, there are people that depend on us. We run errands, we surf the internet. We converse with Siri. We respond to the 177 notifications we receive every day. Okay, at least some of the stuff we do is important. But now, from a slightly different perspective, think with me for just a moment about the sun that came up, about the moon that was there overnight, about the eight planets that are in our neighborhood that comprise what scientists tell us is one single solar system in an array of solar systems that we call the Milky Way galaxy. So if the Milky Way galaxy were the size, and we're shrinking it down quite a bit, but if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the North American continent... The solar system of which you and I are a part would fit in this cup. Our galaxy is one galaxy, and scientists indicate that they think there are over two trillion galaxies. two Voyager spacecrafts are currently barreling through our solar system at the speed of 35,000 miles an hour. Now, they have already been in the sky and traveling for about 40 years. And over that 40 years, they have traveled 11 billion miles. Scientists now estimate that to get a message from where we are to the edge of our our universe, with that message going at the speed of light, it would take more than 15 billion years for it to arrive. Staten says, we are impossibly young, urgently expiring, and un." unbelievably small, but we have convinced ourselves that we are, or at least we should be, in control, directing our own lives and being able to script our own future, but prayer is an invitation to see our world through God's eyes, and he's a lot bigger than we are. The only response to his majesty is to be still and to know that he is God. The most important work of prayer is to simply let that sink in. To be able to release full control and then to let ourselves be loved by God. Truth is, we're actually quite small. But there's a good side that I want you to know about being small. It comes with the awesome wonder of a God who can create a universe like you and I are a part of and still love us enough to send his one and only son Who cares for the things that we care about and counts the hairs on each one of our heads. Who loves us so that nothing happens to us without his consent. Sadly today, the artificial lights of our life drown out the light The stars are still up there, but we seldom see them because we seldom look up. The only lights we see day by day are the lights we have turned on. What started with Adam and Eve in that little garden has really never ended. The conspiracy has repeated itself over and over again with some highlights, like at Babel, or with King Saul, or with the Pharisees, or with you and with me, we're still prone to go about our lives thinking it's all about us. And we're in the middle. We're the center of the universe. We need to see what David saw. We need to see our lives against a backdrop of something much, much bigger, against the backdrop of our God, against his majesty and the awesomeness of our creator and sustainer. Stillness is the quiet space where God moves from the periphery of our life into the very center. Prayer pours out of the lives of those who have God in the middle, in the center. So last week, while I was at the Deeper Journey retreat, we have an opportunity on Monday afternoon For four and a half hours of silence, and I went for a walk and I walked through the cemetery. Some of the two stones there in the DeWitt Cemetery date back before the Civil War. And each one of those stones represents someone who at some point was making plans and preparing for their future, living fast, and trying to reach the goals that they had set. Now they're all just a memory. And our world today is still filled with people who have taken their place, who who are moving even faster than they moved, who are making more plans and, and setting bigger goals and trying to reach each one. The reality is, everything I'm stressed out about, every conflict that replays over and over like a bad movie in my head, every anxiety that upsets my stomach, All that noise will one day come to an end. Psalmist says, and when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. End quote. I walk through a cemetery every now and then. as a helpful reminder of how temporary and fleeting we are. When David prays, when we pray, David and us need to undermine the ancient conspiracy that suggests that we might be in the center or we might be in charge. You see, the word whispered to Adam and to Eve before they grabbed that forbidden fruit was simple. You will not die. You certainly will not die. was a lie. It's still a lie. And that lie has devastated the human soul. And yet to accept our frailty is not depressive. It is not self-deprecating. It is, in fact, a joyous self-awareness. Because as we pray, as you and I engage to seek the Father, we move from fast to still. We move from busyness to solitude. Prayer is an act of rebellion against the lie that we so frequently tend to pursue. Pretending we are immortal is a miserable, dehumanizing lie. It's the original lie. Sadly, most people never grow tired of believing it. In our stillness, we are reminded of our mortality And we recover who we really are. Henry Nouwen writes, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and we continue to be entangled in the illusions of our false self, end quote. David went so far as to plead that that God would continue to remind him of his mortality because he knew that that would remind him of his true value. And that would remind him about how much God really loved him and cared for him. In Psalm 8, we just read that a few moments ago. Let me pick it up with you in the fourth verse and read a few additional verses. What is mankind that you were mindful of him? Human beings that you cared for them. You made them a little lower than angels and you crowned them with glory and honor. David is freely admitting he's not in control. He's king. And he recognizes he is not all powerful. He is not self-sufficient. And here's, here's the key. He realizes he doesn't have to be. It's okay. He's not regretting his humanness. He's celebrating it. And when you and I pray, and when we get to see things for even a moment from God's perspective, when we get to see our true selves, our smallness compared to God doesn't matter because we also see our value as a child loved by God. A king more quickly listens to his son or to his daughter than he does to his other subjects. He, like us, does things for family members that he doesn't do for non-family members. Things I do for my family. I fix the sink. My wife clogged. I pay tuition for my children. I take out the trash because I love them. Now, don't take this wrong, but I'm not doing that for you. Because... When a king loves his kids, like we love our kids, we do for them things we wouldn't do for anybody else out of our love. And that's how God loves us, sons and daughters. Be still. Know that I am God. Slow down. Slow down so you can remember who God really is. Slow down so that you can remember who you and I really are. That's the beginning of prayer. So Jesus intentionally models for us this model of stillness and solitude and submission to his Father. Jesus initiated his ministry 40 days of solitude in the wilderness. He retreated into stillness to pray before he chose his 12 disciples. He prayed he might not have to drink the cup, but then he submitted to his Father's will. So Jesus was both intentional and interruptible. Intentional and interruptible. He stopped to heal Bartimaeus. He stopped to speak with the woman who was caught in adultery. He stopped to raise Lazarus from the dead. Intentional and interruptible mean unhurried. Tyler Staten says, Hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life because hurry kills love. Hurry hides behind anger and agitation and self-centeredness. Hurry blinds us to the truth that we are God's beloved. Stillness and solitude and submission to God transforms our prayers into unhurried love when we stop moving and talking and arrive present and are able to be quiet and submissive before God, he orders our disordered desires, our disordered and distorted attachments, and our codependencies and transforms them into love. You see, when we use others to meet our needs, then we can no longer love them unconditionally. Codependent people can't really love each other. They're just using each other for their own personal glory and gratification. When we use the world or when we rely on something from the world to make us who we are, to give us status and credit, then we can no longer love the world unconditionally. So God has to break down our dependency on the things of this world so that we can truly love this world. Got us to break our attachments to people who feed our egos so that we can see and know and love others for who they are. Stillness, solitude, and submission transform our lives. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, James says. So our prayers come freely once we have submitted once we have given ourselves over to God in obedience, if we seek and follow His will, if we don't rob God of His tithe, if we promote life, if we share our faith, if we express our gratitude, if we bring our worship regularly, if we're obedient, we find God much easier to approach. Our prayers, our prayers come avidly when we when we become dependent. When we we pray best when we're looking up from a hospital bed or when we're hungry or thirsty, when we're in a financial crisis, when we grieve. Our stillness, our solitude, our submission then become profoundly missional. Our stillness starts in isolation and it ends in being with everyone. So be. Be still. Let go of your anxiety. Lay down your burdens. Find rest for your soul. Now, we often stop there, but our text continues. Then, if we're still, if we know he is God, then, God says, I will be exalted. Not me. God. God will be exalted among the nations, and God will be exalted throughout the earth. God's presence will become increasingly visible. His love will begin to undermine hate. His kindness will sweep away competition. His presence will swallow up fear. His joy will wash away jealousy. His peace will calm our rage. But it starts with being and becoming still before God, recognizing who He is and who we are, beholding His presence. He was not worried about dying, but he was still struggling with his prayer life. And this pastor came to visit. And the man told his pastor, Prayer is just not very real to me. The pastor suggested, Let me place this chair right next to your bed. Imagine for a moment Jesus sitting in that chair. Talk to him the same way you're talking to me. The next night, the pastor received a call from that man's daughter. She had been with her father during his last few days. Pastor, she said, I wanted you to know that my father passed away this afternoon. I had just left to fix some lunch for him and for me. And when I went back to check on him, he was gone. The only thing that changed from the time that I left him was that his hand was resting on the chair next to the bed. Be. Be still. Remember who God is. Remember who you are. And then pray without getting them mixed up. That is enough to bring transformation to your life and to mine. And when we change, the world too will begin to change. So look up regularly. See anything more powerful than you? Start your prayer there.